Well, welcome to this podcast of our new series, Anything But Ordinary. Anything But Ordinary. You looked at me for a moment like we should have said it together. I'll try it again. Yeah. Anything Anything But but Ordinary. ordinary. Much better. Yes. (laughs) It's a little bit of a play on words um, because we're doing it during ordinary time and Sanctified Art puts out this series and I really like their resources because they care so much about the visual art and helping people reflect in all sorts of ways. Um, They don't put together scripts for services. They don't really put together a ton of preaching notes. So there's a lot of freedom to address the issues our community has or that might come up from the text, but a lot of resources to help supplement that conversation. Cool. Yeah, so ordinary time is kind of, Pentecost goes on forever, right? It does, yeah. And so it feels like ordinary, so it just became ordinary time. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the, the whole Pentecost fire thing wears off after a bit, so, you know, <laughs> fire, it, become, it becomes ordinary. Burned out, yeah. It's a burned out. Yeah. And uh, the thought is going through, um, really, the Abrahamic family tree and some of the stories we might have heard as kiddos um, that are worth our revisiting because they are our stories. Yeah, one of the things I think is is important for us to keep kind of touching back to is that these are these are not just our stories as Christians, but they they had their roots in the Judaic Bible, and they're mm-hmm. also in the Quran as part of the uh, part of the stories of the um, the Islamic community. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there we are joined as people of Abraham, children of Abraham. Abraham. So we'll be covering this for twelve weeks. <sighs> And we are excited. You're along for the ride with us. Hang on. So it's week two. It is week two. Of anything but ordinary. Barry preached this week. True. Yeah, it was on the... The Exile of Hagar and Ishmael. Chapter 21 of Genesis, which uh, if you're interested, there's a parallel in chapter 16 that you might want to check out. But uh, in any case, we'll start with the reading of the scripture, and Gail Thompson does that. And then we'll go into the message, and uh, afterwards we'll do a little reflection. Today's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 28, verses 8 through 21. The boy grew and stopped nursing. On the day he stopped nursing, Abraham prepared a huge banquet. Sarah saw Hagar's son laughing, the one Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham. So she said to Abraham, send this servant away with her son. This servant's son won't share the inheritance with my son, Isaac. This upset Abraham terribly because the boy was his son. God said to Abraham, don't be upset about the boy and your servant. Do everything Sarah tells you to do because your descendants will be traced through Isaac. But I will make of your servant's son a great nation too, 
because he is also your descendant. Abraham got up early in the morning, took some bread and a flask of water, and gave it to Hagar. He put the boy in her shoulder sling and sent her away. She left and wandered through the desert near Beersheba. Finally, the water in the flask ran out, and she put the boy down under one of the desert shrubs. She walked away from him about as far as a bow shot and sat down, telling herself, I can't bear to see the boy die. She sat at a distance, cried out in grief, and wept. God heard the boy's cries, and God's messenger called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, Hagar, what's wrong? Don't be afraid. God has heard the boy's cry over there. Get up, pick up the boy, and take him by the hand, because I will make of him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well. She went over, filled the water flask, and gave the boy a drink. God remained with the boy. He grew up, lived in the desert, and became an expert archer. He lived in the Paran Desert, and his mother found him an Egyptian wife. A word of God that is still speaking. Thanks be to God. Amen. June 19th marks this nation's second Independence Day. On the eve of January 1st, 1863, the first watch night services were held in homes and in churches all over this land as the Emancipation Proclamation was about to take effect. And it did. It did take effect, except in places still under Confederate control as the Civil War was still raging. So the westernmost Confederate state, Texas, did not free slaves until much later, June 19th, 1895. The Union Army announced that more than 250,000 slaves in that state were free by executive decree. The day became known as Juneteenth, and so we celebrate that day as our second National Day of Independence tomorrow. All of that, I would ask you to hold and take note that our text today centers around a woman living and a child born into slavery many, many, many years before. I remind you that last week, Jess preached on the divine visitors to Abraham and Sarah. We learned how honored Abraham was to have these strangers drop by and how pleased he was to have Sarah and the servants put on a lush spread of hospitality. And we caught that Abraham was the personality type that would simply love to have company drop by any time. Sarah, not so much. She was kind of a call ahead if you're even ever in the neighborhood sort of person. The story ended with God promising that on a return journey in the next year, Sarah and Abraham would have a child, and Sarah laughed, and God asked why, and Sarah denied it. I didn't laugh. 
you need to know that God had cut a deal way back in the 12th chapter of Genesis when the golden couple were younger and were known as Sarai and Abram. God called Abram to follow, and in return, Abe would be parent to a whole brood of little ones. Well, in the space between chapter 12 and chapter 18, Sarah got a little tired of waiting for God to make good on the promise. You will be parents of a great nation. Their numbers will be like the stars in the heavens, the sands of the sea. But listen, Sarah was old, ancient for the near east of that time. She was thinking God had forgotten or that God needed a little help, so she buys into a very well-accepted well social custom of the time. She tells Abraham to just, just go in with my maidservant. Read slave. Go in with my slave Hagar and conceive a child. This was a very early form of surrogacy, only it was not voluntary. Abraham somewhat reluctantly or not agrees and all goes well. Nature and God take their course, and Ishmael is born. In the amazing humor of God, no sooner is Ishmael born than Sarah discovers that her old wrinkly body is growing full and that she is, as they say, great with child. God, perhaps, has the last laugh. Enter chapter 21. Isaac, Isaac, it means son of laughter. Isaac, son of laughter, is born to Abraham and Sarah. Hagar and Ishmael are part of the family. Ishmael is older now, maybe preteenish. And the kids are in the yard playing, I don't know, with Tonka trucks and G.I. Joes or something. They're playing. And Sarah has been having a bit of a hard time because she is certain that Hagar now looks down on her with a bit of contempt because she went the baby way first and because Sarah is sure that she has seen Abraham with a little twinkle in his eye whenever Hagar is around. Sarah's having a hard time of it. And Sarah knew that because Ishmael was firstborn of Abraham, he would be the heir apparent to the sheep fortune. Now watching the boys, Sarah is sure that she is not simply seeing Ishmael playing with Isaac, but she's sure that she's seeing Ishmael playing Isaac or taking the role of Isaac or taking on the features of Isaac. The Hebrew is really interesting here. They're playing on the name. Sarah is not upset that the kids are together, but that, to her, Ishmael seems every bit as important as, every, as, as Isaac could ever be. And we can't have that now, can we? Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean someone's not out to get you. And so Sarah goes on the offensive. So Sarah is clear something needs to be done. Abe, don't you think it's getting just... Um, a little bit crowded around here. Would you take Hagar and Ishmael for a little ride out in the desert and just, you know, leave them there? Abe isn't thrilled with this request, but it is a small bit of collateral damage if it means keeping peace in the house. So off they go. They are 
castaways. They are castaways. In case you haven't seen it, this is Wilson, the volleyball friend of Tom Hanks in the movie Castaway. Tom crashes a plane, and this from the FedEx plane washes up on shore, and he puts his bloody handprint on it, and it becomes his companion. Adults get all wrapped up in social nuances. They pay attention to who's first, who's on top, who has the privileges, and who doesn't. Kids, though, have an incredible way of not getting the nuances of, the, of division. Kids play together. Expectations are low, giggles are frequent, laughter comes without any baggage. Whines and cries last only a short time, and kids only kill each other in the fantasy of silly, competitive play where death never lasts. The walls that divide us humans do not go up quickly, they do not go up naturally. Those walls are taught along with the values of self-service, self-protection, and the parent of it all, greed. Adults get wrapped up in the fear factors that build and maintain walls of, of separation. My dad carried a wealth of bigotry and isolation into our home. On my eighth birthday, he came into my party room and proceeded to throw a fit because my friend Maurice, who happened to be black, was there, and my father was not having it. A whole lot of unlearning had to go from that eighth birthday. Some of what goes on when our youth and adults get together to go to the hills of Appalachia or to the potato fields of Missouri or to the urban mission fields of Pittsburgh or Chicago or Detroit or Grand Rapids or Kalamazoo for that matter as we get ready to do, ready to do Kalamazoo service project. What's going on here is putting hands and feet, hearts and minds to work undoing the biases, the apathy, the self-centeredness we find ourselves swimming in all year. Isaac and Ishmael playing together, being together, proving that so much about them is indistinguishable. Being in each other's space, being in each other's face, having to deal with each other is a healthy way of growing. And sometimes, sometimes parents get in the way, but adult types. Adult types, especially parent types, mess all that up royally. Ishmael and Isaac were fine. Sarah was not fine. Sarah is, Sarah is a hot mess and, let, and lets Abraham know this is not workable for her. Get the half-breed kid and his mother out of here. Like chipmunks or squirrels or raccoons, live trapped and taken for a ride to relocate. Abraham rises up early in the morning, lifts Ishmael to one of Hagar's shoulders and puts a skin of water on the other, kisses the cheek of each and sends them off to the desert. Thanks, it's been nice. See ya, adios, y vaya con Dios, and they're off. That is so much of how we deal with relationships in our world. They become difficult or inconvenient or forced loyalties or, or whatever. If we are lucky, there is a goodbye and an off we go or off we send into the desert of separation. If it is at all understandable to the Hagars around us, it is certainly not understandable to the Ishmaels. It's just a kid. 
Ishmael's are the remnants of bad behavior, the fragments of broken trust, the barely breathing bodies of possibility. The world is facing that desert a bit more every day, folks. It's not getting better. The Sarahs and the Abrahams and the Isaacs secure comfort for self while the Hagars and the Ishmaels wander the deserts, crawling up under some scrub bush, bush waiting, waiting for inevitable death. This is our, our scrub brush for today. The Sarahs, the Abrahams, the Isaacs don't even need to watch. Separation is sufficient, out of earshot, castaways everywhere, most without so much as a Wilson volleyball to keep them company. But in Genesis, in Genesis, God hears and God responds. In Genesis, God sees and God responds. Hagar and Ishmael are picked up, given water and food, kissed hello, whispered the promise that there is hope for them, that there is future for them. God, the Father. On this Father's Day, we take time each year to honor and appreciate the fathers in our lives. Just as we have expanded our metaphors for God beyond the traditional God, the Father, so we have also thankfully broadened our understanding of who those are in our lives and the lives of others who father us. Those who parent in this way may or may not be biological parents. A father is forged and is shown in the relationship the sustained care and guidance and love. And so we honor all fathers, no matter how they identify, no matter how they came to hold the role, the relationship. Those who parent in this way deserve honor. And yet, Abraham is too many of us. Shrugging shoulders, wiping tears, muttering, what can I do? I wish it were diff different. It's the price we have to pay. We mutter this about our own kids, about our own places of broken trust and separation. We mutter it about the world in which we live. As much as I'm troubled by broken relationships in our church families and the families of our community, as much as I see folks giving in way too easily to separation and divorce, to drug-corrected kids, to silenced households, as much as I deal with folks weekly on these matters, I'm troubled. I'm troubled about a global epidemic of pushing our children away on the other side of the world. We far too easily accept the transcontinental epidemics of treatable diseases. We take kids dying from dysentery far too silently. We face child sexual slavery with a what can I do tier. We continue to accept hunger in the world when all experts are clear we have the resources, folks, to feed and, and give drink to the entirety of the world. But we clearly do not have the parental will that recognizes that we parent the entire world on behalf of God. Hagar set her child, her Ishmael, down under a scrub brush to grant a bit, a bit of shade, a moment of respite before the thirst took over and the process of dying had its way. Hagar moved away so that she did not need to bear witness. I can't watch. But God watches. God provided a well and a way, Ber Lachai Roy, 
the will of the God, the well of the God who sees. God still sees and grants us eyes to see as God's beloved church. Hagar was one voice crying in the wilderness, and God heard. A multitude of voices crying in the wilderness motivates the souls beyond those voices and those who hear those voices to act, God willing to act, to change. Bottom line is that God sees and God hears, and God calls us to do the same. That is what church is about. That is what faith community is about. That is the call of the people. God does not forget the castaway and calls us to not forget. And yet, we do. 20 years ago, I know this because it was the last time I preached this text. 20 years ago, Bono and others formed a nonprofit to advocate with governments of the world to commit 1%. 1% of their budgets to end extreme poverty and preventable disease by 2030. So that everyone, so that everywhere, folks can lead a life of dignity and opportunity. This was not about charity, but was about dignity and opportunity. It, was, it made global headlines. Folks signed on and faith communities joined in and we became occupied with other things and forgot, as we do. Hagar and Ishmael were no doubt grateful that God has a better attention span than God's beloved creation. 20 years ago, Americans backed one, saying we believe that in the best American tradition of helping others help themselves, now is the time to join with other countries in a historic pact for compassion and justice to help the poorest people of the world overcome AIDS and extreme poverty. We recognize that a pact including such measures is as, as such measures as fair trade, debt relief, fighting corruption, and directing additional resources for basic needs, education, health, clean water, food, and care for orphans would transform the futures and hopes of an entire generation in the poorest of countries at a cost equal to just 1% more of the U.S. budget. We commit ourselves, one person, one voice, one vote at a time, to make a better, safer world for all. Wow. And things have changed. In the 20 years, we know that the changes in our climate have made this even more difficult, but the commitment remains doable. Hagar Ishmael, a simple story of slavery, of crummy choices and no choices, of God remembering leading to redemption, political because Hagar was property and by extension so was Ishmael, political because God stepped in and enacted justice, one. One person, one percent of a national budget, as it was not Ishmael's problem, as it is not the kid's problem, it ends up being at theirs at the end. God calls us to make it our problem so that it can be our solution. So those who mourn the changes in the United Methodist Church mourn the connection that allowed us to do so much amazing work of justice together. It still works, and we're still doing it, and I still challenge us to consider the outcasts and work in and through the church to enact change. Children of Abraham, all 
Jew, Christian, Muslim, descendants of Ishmael or Isaac. We make a mockery of our children when we cannot get over ourselves enough to do the right thing for our kids the world over. Is this not a message for Father's Day? Is this not a more important gift than a new putter or a meal to Logan's Roadhouse? Father Abraham stands as one as he sends his flesh and blood into the desert. What if we stand together with him and offer other possibilities? What if we are the eyes and ears of God that go to the desert and pick up the human refuse and offer life, hope, and kiss? The kiss of finding and welcoming back. Ultimately, the one who thought they were simply castaways. We are back. We are back. And as we often do, um, first question of the preacher is, what did you want us to take from that? You know, it is a huge piece of scripture. Yes. And it, it really gets us going deep into how very different the culture of the day was. Mm. And um, I wanted us to take away that in as much as it's a story about um, a situation where someone, um, well, multiple someones have little or no agency and um, decisions are made, being made on their behalf. Sometimes God's being blamed in the process. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, Sarah and Abraham are trying to get to this place where God's promise is fulfilled. But in this chapter, they're dealing with Ishmael, who is now, has now grown a, a little bit and is, a, is an older stepbrother to Isaac being raised in the same household. And I wanted us to see that while this is a very different time, people in our time also lack agency and there are justice issues. And I tried to bring it around to that in a variety of ways, uh, connecting to Father's Day. There's a lot going on in this sermon. Uh, but in the end, trying to, to give us some challenge about how to live out justice so that people in the world have um, are able to be are able to take care of themselves and have agency for themselves. That's not language I use, but I should have. Oh, well, yeah. I think um, you're right in that this is um, this is such a rich text. And, um, no, you know, I'm, I was not envious of the fact that you had two rather complicated um, cultural holidays. Yeah, not maybe complicated isn't the right word, but you know what I'm saying. There's there's nuance around them, and people um, have all sorts of feelings and emotions yeah. about them, and that that's hard. Yeah, Juneteenth was. Um, I, I decided to deal with it by putting it up front mm-hmm. and kind of contextualizing um, that particular period where people were being released from slavery, but but with a whole lot of kicking and screaming. Yeah. Um, and it, it took a lot of time, um, but finally there was freedom. And, and moving that into, and here's a story about a woman who had no, no choice in the matter um, of giving birth to a child that was not hers. Yeah, and then and then also was forced, you know, into yep. a desert like many of those initial, yeah. you know, enslaved people when they were freed in, in the middle of Texas. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them chose to stay on plantations because they had no place to go. Yeah, yeah, just. I've been thinking about how incredibly complicated 
these stories are. Um, not in their structure, obviously, like they're simplistic stories, but in terms of how we respond to them, um, they have so many um, human emotions. How did you kind of pick a lane for this one? Well, I don't think I did it terribly successfully, oh. frankly. I mean, it, it felt like there was a lot going on, and I was trying to, <clears throat> I was trying to honor Juneteenth. I was trying to mm-hmm. honor Father's Day in a very broad way that mm-hmm. helped folks understand that we all play father parent, parenting roles in yeah. in our lives, and uh, and need to to honor those who are doing that every day. Um, my lane ultimately. Uh, I found myself wanting to move into, because so much of the text that we could not understand or rationalize as 21st century people, I took it in the direction of how do we, how do we as human beings in the 21st century redeem the kinds of, um, of places in the world that are, that are not being redeemed without the help of human beings, that God calls us as human beings, God calls us particularly as church to be involved in justice in the world. That's really where I, where I ended up. That's the lane that I, that I tried to stay in about from about the midway point of the sermon. Yeah. I, um, I really appreciated the zooming out on Father's Day as more like, hey, um, in the same way we understand individual parental relationships to provide support and care and nurturing such that new generations can thrive. Like let's zoom out because as a church, uh, we are the body that is, that is called to do that by God uh, within our community. Like that was really clear. And I, that was helpful for me too, just because sometimes these, um, you know, these holidays I'm like, okay, you know, like, all right. Like I love my dad. This is wonderful. And um, they're so individualistic. So it was, it was nice to kind of have a communal call as a part of what that might look like. Yeah, I think it, I also own that it's not perfect. That my own my own parenting, my own father was was not uh, a perfect human being and uh, racist um, <clears throat> in ways that that I needed to to fight against and and still do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that resonates with people. Uh, not yeah. all of us are are raised in contexts where we look back and everything was wonderful. And yeah. I think, for honest, they're they're not all wonderful. Um, and likewise, that that our couching God in in father language is not always is not always uh, the most perfect way to go because God in this story is at once redemptive, but it is also problematic because um, God looks on while the behavior is is happening without really giving any any judgment toward it. It's a very different scene than you're going to have in twenty two. I mean, you know, it's the very next chapter, and, and the, the role of God shifts quite a bit. Yeah. Well, I think you bring up a good point, too. Uh, Christians have very strongly adopted God the Father language, which is largely from, you know, what we understand Christ's words to be, but then we, we built a lot around that. That's a lot of how we understand the Trinity. Um, but that is not a singular <laughs> understanding who God can be. And I think it's helpful um, to note that, like you said, like some people have not had great uh, father figures, fathers in their lives, and that's not a helpful image. And that, um, you know, there's no mandate that you use that, that it's language that the church has traditionally found um, 
helpful. It is language that Jesus used, so oftentimes we will use it, but that doesn't mean it needs to resonate or it's a mandate um, from anyone, you know, leading worship that anyone has to use that particular language. Yeah, and and Jesus, as you've pointed out, uses very personal God language that would would indicate that as far as Jesus is concerned, this is a deeply intimate uh, relationship where it seems that Jesus feels quite proud yeah. of, of the daddy that he has. Yeah. Yeah, because there are plenty of other images <laughs> for God in all sorts of ways that we don't often use or refer to, you know, in that sense. So I think that's a, that's a helpful zoom out for us as well. So I know this text is one that you have spent a lot of time in. If, uh, if you were preaching on a different day, or if you had like a little bit of time to kind of talk around um, some more of the text specifically, rather than kind of uh, thoughtfully addressing the contextual place we're at, what would you say? What would you add about it? I would have spent a whole lot of time doing some juxtaposition between chapter 16 and, for, and chapter 21. Mm -hmm. Chapter 16 introduces Ishmael and Hagar, and um, it's it's the older version. It's the Yahwist version, so it's the one that uses the name Yahweh for God rather than Elohim for God, which is what we get in chapter 21. So chapter 21 in some ways um, takes takes the story further and theologizes it in, in a much more interesting way. Um, and we get this, this cycle, kind of this psycho-religious thing going on mm. uh, where, where Sarah is having this paranoid moment and, and not only sees Ishmael playing with Isaac, but playing Isaac. Mm. And that in her mind, it's like he's trying to take the place of her real son. And that, that, that relational piece between God as parent and ourselves as parent, it's very interesting how they play off in the two chapters. So I, I would spend more time, uh, if I was teaching it, I would spend time in the two chapters. Preaching out of two chapters is, is problematic. It's a lot. It's a lot. I mean, as it was, uh, the, the sermon went a little bit longer than, than I think my average, but um, there was a lot there. Yeah. Well, I think you bring up another good point in talking about the different... Um, how 16 and 21 in Genesis have different names for God, that indicates to us that they really come from entirely different sources. And so for those, those of us that have been in this series and hearing us talk about story and how our scriptures are compiled and put together, that's really important for us to keep in mind because they really are woven together from different places, from, you know, from, um, different subcultures within a culture and, and trying to make one coherent kind of narrative over thousands of years with a lot of different people. And I think that's um, just naming that with these particularities is also really helpful for those of us that kind of get like, <laughs> we're so caught in the story and we treat it as if it is um, it's a fact right in front of us and we forget how these things came to be and how they were put together. Yeah, I think as we're thinking about story, um, you know, people kind of tend to hear story as, oh, oh poo-poo, that's just a story. Mm -hmm. uh, but if we think about our own lives, um, story is where we begin to hear truth. And as, as kids, the stories are told to us. And we talk a lot about telling stories around campfires and, and mm -hmm. you know, we'll tell ghost stories and things become part of our fiber. These stories were, were 
uh, no doubt told in a pre-literal uh, culture as yes. stories are told, handed down as oral tradition, and then start to be penned, as it were, um, first by the Yahuist and then the Elohist, and with very different cultures and mm -hmm. very, very different ideas of um, how God and human interface. We can see that in the creation stories because those are from those two. That's absolutely true. Yeah, those two different sources. The right. first creation story is actually from a much later time period than the second. That is correct. Which is, I think, pretty obvious once you know that and you read them. But that's another really striking example. Yeah, yeah. yeah and there's there's plenty of examples, and and there are other sources as well that are neither Yahwist or Elohist, and mm -hmm. and if you really want to spend some time, <laughs> Jess and I would be happy to talk with you about uh, about uh, all the all the other amazing sources of scripture. But but at the beginning, I think it's helpful for all of us to remember that they're, they are rooted in oral tradition where people um, passed on stories and they did a really good job of it. Yes. It was not like the telephone game. They, it was the way in which they held their culture and their religious belief. Yeah. And I, I remember um, one, of the, one of the first times I was in, um, in therapy and I remember my therapist asking me, Hey, what story are you telling yourself right now? And it that's one of the first like recognitions I had. We're always telling ourselves stories all the time. Um, we are letting them be told to us, we are telling them ourselves, you know. So having agency over understanding what story is ours, what holds cultural significance, what we will claim, um, how we will understand it, that's that's the work of faith communities together. Like that's a lot of what we're called to do is rooted in the story of, of who we tell ourselves we are and who we worship and what all that looks like. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting to me anyway. Um, chapter 16 and 21, I did this, uh, this work um, as an undergraduate doing Hebrew studies uh, on my own uh, outside, of, uh, outside of class with uh, the head of the religious studies department. And he liked what I had written and wanted me to do this piece for the Society of Biblical Literature. So I did this undergraduate document and then brought it, when I got to Yale, I brought it to the head of my, uh, my department because we were talking about things. That, and I mentioned him, to him that I had done an SBL paper. He said, oh, I'd like to read it. And he read it and he gave it back to me and he said, you know, it was really interesting. Uh, the Hebrew was, you know, interesting. What was really interesting is is that it was really uh, it was really a document about about psychology and how people uh, how people live out their faith in, out of the context of their own psychological health. And I think that's absolutely right. And we can find ourselves in these characters, right? Okay. Uh, we can find ourselves in Sarah, uh, yeah. feel, feeling feeling this place of isolation and protection around our child yeah, and, and, and jealous and jealous yeah. and all that stuff and and all the stuff we feel and it's not just jealous about the child but quite sure that abraham was was yeah. uh, more interested in hagar after after he had his way with her you know so that all of this kind of soap opera drama that goes in there um i think as we read it it's important that we we be honest with our with our feelings about it because that's part of the the scriptural reality and uh, it's part of the reality of being people, you yeah. know, so... <laughs> well, yeah, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, sometimes we, because we call these stories and because we acknowledge they are written in different times and, you know, we have a picture of what that culture looks like from scholars, um, but there is just this very baseline human experience that we can read into and we can understand from these stories. It's not like these people were more primitive and far removed. They weren't, you know, they, they feel all the same things we felt and we see that reflected. And one of the reasons these stories, I think, are particularly hard is because they deal 
with some of the most vulnerable, tender emotions that humans hold. And a lot of family stuff. These scriptures are all about family and where we come from. And, you know, that's just for many of us a source um, of our greatest pain, our greatest joy. Like, there's just a lot that we kind of have wrapped up in there that these stories kind of tug at for us. Um, and they're, yeah, they're really, they're beautiful, but they're hard. Well, stories of, stories of marriage, stories of infertility, uh, stories of waiting and waiting and waiting and quite sure that God has made you a promise, but God doesn't seem to be coming through. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are a few of us that can't identify with those dynamics yeah. in some way. Yeah. Uh, and then, and the story is all about folks trying to figure out around these storytelling fires, um, what is God actually doing? This, this, and we were talking about it a little bit this morning. You'll, you'll go into it more, but that the, these are really stories told in the context of a polytheistic culture with multiple gods being responsible for different elements, and they're coming down with one God who is responsible for all things. Yeah. And if God is responsible for all things, that brings some problematic stuff to us. What does that mean, and what does that look like for us? So we get to, uh, we get to work out some of our own stuff in. Um, and the scripture guiding us and the spirit, I mean, guiding us and in, in our, you know, long time ago, faith ancestors working out their own stuff. And it's a, it's a really interesting um, yeah, narrative tool that I think because um, many, many progressives, <laughs> progressive Christians, um, I think we kind of disregard some of these or we can because we don't think that they're super relevant. <laughs> We're like, well, that's not our culture anymore. Such, so, you know, or because there's a lot of things. Yeah, like we don't follow Leviticus to a T, and we shouldn't. And we know that it has been used to harm people. Like that's not our calling. That's not who we are. And we know that there are other Christians that use it in particular ways that are harmful. I should say, um, that does not mean you know we can just whole hog say these are irrelevant for us. We get to do some of the meaning making and some of the decisions around that without, you know, kind of throwing them out. Part and parcel. Yeah, we have the whole, the whole text, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And if we are a people of the book, that that means that we take the book seriously enough to really delve into it and to to, to understand how things came to be and and how it is that that the spirit may be leading us to not pay so much attention to every jot and tittle, but to take a a, a larger view of what the story is telling us. Mm-hmm. A little bit of a zoom out so we can get the zoom out. Get the bigger picture. I think we did it. Is you there know, a, yeah, is there anything else you wanna leave us with? No. There were there were no. there, 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 there no. I mean, you know, the question usually asked is were there rabbit holes? There yeah. are a lot of rabbit holes. Yeah. It's, a lot, it's a lot of text. But um, you know, if we'll leave for another day. I, because we're dealing with this Abrahamic tradition, uh, you're gonna be picking up on some of this stuff in twenty two uh, this coming week. So yeah, it's just gonna it's gonna keep being woven together as we kind of progress in this in this series. So we and, have plenty of time. And listeners are gonna keep asking for more. It's that kind. <laughs> it's that kind of preaching you're getting, and that kind of podcast. You tell me more. Wow. Wow. Well, tell if that's you, more, tell me more. <laughs> if you would like. If you would like more, if you would like Barry to sing show tune renditions, just whatever, you can reach out to us and uh, let us know what you're thinking um, and what you might have to add to the conversation. We'd love to chat with you.
We'll see you next time.